The Hamlet Podcast, Episode 34. Hello and welcome to this exploration of Shakespeare's Macbeth, with me your host, Connor Hanrity. First of all, sincere apologies for the missed episode last week. I was sick and wasn't able to get to the microphone. I'm just about better now, and indeed I've started rehearsals for a play that features Verdi's version of Lady Macbeth, but more on that a little later. For now, we're back to our own business here, and Shakespeare's lady has just told her husband to sleek o'er his rugged looks and put on a brave face for their dinner guests tonight. Macbeth gives her quite a conflicted answer. So shall I, love, and so I pray be you. Let your remembrance apply to Banquo. Present him eminence, both with eye and tongue. Unsafe the while, that we must lave our honours in these flattering streams, and make our faces vizards to our hearts, disguising what they are. For starters, he agrees that yes, he'll put his best foot forward, and hopes that she will too. He then asks Lady Macbeth to pay special attention to Banquo, let her remembrance apply to him, and present him eminence, both with eye and tongue. So he wants her to keep an eye on him, and to speak with him, eye and tongue. This should of course strike us as quite peculiar, since we've just seen Macbeth arrange Banquo's imminent murder. There's a big shift happening here. These two have been so close, and now Macbeth is operating without her. We've already seen him dismiss her along with the rest of the court, and now here he's misleading her entirely, tasking her with paying special attention to Banquo at this dinner, where obviously Banquo's unlikely to show up. Macbeth continues with a comment on their current state of affairs. They're just not quite on solid ground yet, despite having taken the throne. They're still unsafe the while. He has a very complicated metaphor of having to wash or lave their honours in these flattering streams. They're surrounded by flatterers, giving a stream of compliments in which they must bathe their honour. It's an intriguing image, and it somehow manages to combine our key images in the play of clothing and things not quite fitting or being right, along with having to wash the blood off his hands, as he tried earlier. These honours, that of being king and queen, still aren't quite steady or comfortable. And this dinner will be a chore, as everyone there will be, of course, trying to say the right thing and flatter them. So king and queen will have to keep these masks on, with their faces hiding their hearts, disguising who they really are unsafe the while that we must lave our honours in these flattering streams and make our faces vizards to our hearts disguising what they are. Lady Macbeth is concerned that her husband, now king, is still stewing in this. She completes his line of verse and insists you must leave this. But he confesses that he really is still troubled. Oh, full of scorpions is my wind, dear wife. Thou knowest that Banquo and his fleance lives. 
this is a brilliant image for a troubled brain. Imagine your head being full of scorpions. It's all the more impressive given the likelihood that Shakespeare had probably never seen a real-life scorpion. Now, maybe he had, but they're very rare. A notoriously frightening creature that looks very menacing with its claws and that trademark curved body with the sting in the tail. One alone is unpleasant. A head full of them is a real nightmare. Shakespeare makes only two other references to scorpions anywhere in his plays, so it's a real shocker here. Macbeth's concern, as he makes very clear, is that he can't be at peace because Banquo and Fleance are still alive. It feels almost as though he's asking for permission, sounding out Lady Macbeth to see if she might agree that they have to go. She doesn't immediately volunteer any agreement. She seems more concerned with their offspring, and says, But in them nature's copies not etern. They can't live forever, she says, nor will their progeny. Nothing is eternal. In this, Macbeth seems to hear what he wants to hear, and he replies, There's comfort yet. They are assailable. Then be thou jocund. Ere the bat hath flown his cloistered flight, ere to black Hecate's summons the shard-born beetle with his drowsy hums hath rung night's yawning peal, there shall be done a deed of dreadful note. There's still hope and comfort, since, yes, Banquo and Fleance can be got at. They are assailable. So, he's saying, Let's put on these masks, he tells Lady Macbeth, to be jocund or jolly. They can enjoy this party, since before the bat has made his nocturnal flight around the cloisters, before the buzzing beetle has answered Hecate's summons and announced the night with his droning buzz, something awesome will be done. Even in the natural and nocturnal imagery, there's a kind of worsening afoot. We've moved from owls to even more threatening creatures, bats, which were associated with badness and horror long before Bram Stoker make us think of vampires. Even Hecate, the goddess of witches and bad things, has gone from pale to black Hecate here. The beetle, described, has a thick shell that hums and buzzes as it flies, and Macbeth likens it to a bell announcing the darkest time of night. And at that point of darkness and danger, he says, a deed will be committed. Ere the bat hath flown his cloistered flight, ere to black Hecate's summons the shard-born beetle with his drowsy hums hath rung night's yawning peal, there shall be done a deed of dreadful note. Obviously Lady Macbeth is interested to know what he's talking about, and she asks, what's to be done? But instead of letting her in on the plan, which, until now, he would always have done with his, as he called her, dearest partner of greatness, he keeps her guessing. Be innocent of the knowledge, dearest Chuck, till thou applaud the deed. 
Come, sealing night, scarf up the tender eye of pitiful day, and with thy bloody and invisible hand cancel and tear to pieces that great bond which keeps me pale. Light thickens, and the crow makes wing to the rookie wood. Good things of day begin to droop and drowse, while night's black agents to their praise do rouse. Thou marvelst at my words, but hold thee still. Things bad begun make strong themselves by ill. It might seem like a small moment, but it's devastating. We first met Lady Macbeth reading a letter in which her husband told her everything, and he told her this as an equal. Now here he's playing coy with her, leaving her out, excluding her from the plan. Worse yet, she's no longer being called partner. Within the scene, she's been called love and dearest wife, and now he gives her a nickname, dearest Chuck, that's only ever said by a higher status partner to their inferior. I'll put a few examples of this in the show notes. It'd be very easy to miss this change in their relationship, and it could certainly be acted as a playful moment, a sort of teasing promise from husband to wife, as he hints that she will be full of praise for the outcome once it happens. But he definitely doesn't let her know what it is, because he's keeping her clueless. Be innocent of the knowledge, dearest Chuck, till thou applaud the deed. This is not how Lady Macbeth likes to operate. The play doesn't end here or anything, but it's a massive landmark for her. Until now, she's always known exactly what's going on. She can hear a sound and know where it's coming from. She knows what to do. She knows when to act, how to operate. She knows it all. And the worst thing he can do to her is keep her in the dark. And Macbeth continues, eagerly calling on night to fall. A lot of the images here are from hunting, but particularly from hunting with birds of prey, like falcons. He calls on sealing night, night that will mask or seal or scarf up the tender eye of pitiful day. Night is dark and its cover blinds the light of day. Falcons and hawks were likewise sealed or deprived of sight as part of the taming process. There's hints here of hoodwinking and deception and hunting and danger and taming and conquest. Macbeth wants night to fall because when it does, it's going with its bloody and invisible hand to cancel and tear to pieces that great bond, he says, that keeps him pale. Paleness appears quite a lot in this play, a sign of horror, but also of evil, like pale Hecate. So Macbeth is eager for this night to happen, since he's got the murderers ready to strike tonight. This night will cancel and shred his bond of friendship with Banquo, which will make his reign secure and no longer, as he mentioned earlier, unsafe. There's a really amazing double set of images here. There's the hunting, the savagery of night as a murdering bird of prey, but also, all of these words are to do with law and contracts and bonds. Innocent of the deed, he says, sealing a bond in the other sense of the word sealing, one that can be cancelled and torn to pieces like a legal document. With this agreement or bond shredded, 
Macbeth will no longer be troubled by his scruples, or indeed appalled by the threat of any more murder. It's just Banquo that has to be killed, well, just Banquo and Fleance, and then all will be well. He now speaks one of my favourite lines in the play, this extraordinary description of the murky moment between day and night. Light thickens, he says. We've heard come thick night earlier in the play. The fog and the filthy air in this thick nighted Scotland feel almost tangible in their cloudy, murky malevolence. The crow, another bird that feeds on corpses and augurs no good, is flying to join all the other rooks in the wood. The good things of day begin to droop and drowse, perhaps aided by that lullaby of those beetles humming. All this while night's black agents begin to rouse and get to work. Light thickens, and the crow makes wing to the rooky wood. Good things of day begin to droop and drowse, while night's black agents to their praise do rouse. Lady Macbeth is surely shocked, first by her exclusion from the plan, although she's no fool and can presumably join the dots. Macbeth has told her that there'll be an awesome deed committed, and that he won't be happy until Banquo and Fleance are assailed, shall we say. And now he's just mentioned Knight's Black Agents. Metaphorical, perhaps, but we're all thinking of the actual murderers here, too. So presumably she can take a good guess. All of this is presumably written on her face now, as Macbeth comments at her marvelled response. But, he says, keep your nerve. Things that begin with a bad action can only strengthen themselves with further crimes. Thou marvelst at my words, but hold thee still. Things bad begun make strong themselves by ill. So that's it it seems. We started down this path with a murder, and the only way to secure the position is to do just a little bit more ill. It's almost nonchalant from Macbeth. Normally, it's Lady Macbeth who has to steal her husband and get him to focus and get back to work. Now, instead, we see him telling her how things are, and how they'll have to proceed. Shakespeare doesn't give Lady Macbeth a word to say here, the husband ploughs on, and he all but frog-marches her off the stage, away to get ready for dinner with the scene's closing lines. So, prithee, go with me. Obviously this means literally, come on, this way, as he leads her off the stage. But this, go with me, also surely means that she will now have to go along with his plan. His. No longer theirs. And that's the end of Act 3, Scene 2. The next scene is a short one, but a shocking one, and it'll all happen within the next episode alone. So be sure to stay tuned and stay subscribed. And if you want to read along with the text and its notes, as ever, these will all be on the website, thehamletpodcast.com. Thank you for your company and for tuning in, as always. Sorry again that I was off last week, and I'll speak to you next time.